Welcome back, Startup House. Today we have an episode that discusses our voyage to the island of Data Nirvana. Why should we care about our digital rights and data privacy? And what will the world look like when we achieve optimal conditions? This is the information era, so we should start looking deeper into the what, who, where, how, and why that goes with this data. Today, the captain of the ship is Sean Mospaltz, who is the CEO of Bitmark, a company creating protocols in the digital rights and data provenance space. You're listening to Draper Startup House Podcast, the one-stop shop for exploration, connecting, and inspiration. We show you different pathways in life so you can decide what's right for you. We interview entrepreneurs and professionals all across the world. My name is AJ, a serial explorer and your tour guide. Hey, Sean, how are you going? How's your day been? I'm good, AJ. Really great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on board. So what I wanted to start with is since you're based in Taiwan, would really like to hear your thoughts and what it's been like transitioning to Taiwan. I just actually got back from Taiwan. So I'm curious to see what business culture is like there and is there anything special that's happening at the moment? So I think Taiwan itself is just a very special place. It's an island, which like, it's kind of strange because you can go in these major cities and you don't feel like you're in an island at all. And then you drive 30, 40 minutes um, and you have these beaches that are just beautiful and good waves. I'm, uh, I'm a surfer. I try to keep it a secret over here, but there actually is quite good waves in Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. And um, the most... Um, Valuable asset, I would say, of Taiwan is the people. Uh, the people here are amazing, um, well-educated, very, um, very, uh, very friendly, um, very good for working with long-term. Um, I've just had just an, an amazing experience with the people. I couldn't say anything bad about them over here. Yeah, and how long have you been based there? So I have been in Taiwan. I was actually just trying to do the math yesterday. Um, 16, 17 years now. So um, pretty much um, uh, solid um, um, in Asia for those 16, 17 years. A little bit of time in Beijing. Um, and then between that, a little bit of time in Los Angeles. But most of my life since school has been in Asia, specifically Taiwan. Yeah. And actually, what was really interesting when I looked at your background, uh, similar to myself, you did mathematics and physics. What um, I mean, what drew you to that field? And, and I'm curious as to the fact that right now you're doing something almost completely different. Uh, obviously, you use some of the principles in, in data rights and things like that, but you went into industrial design. What's that journey been like? You know, why did you pick mathematics, physics, and then how did you transition out? Sure. So um, I originally picked what would be considered computer science now. So they had a course called electrical computer engineering. It was a yeah. hybrid between um, circuits and code, I guess you would say. And um, yeah, it, it was a very frustrating course for me. I've programmed since I was a little kid. And so they wanted me to learn all these different algorithms. And I was like, okay, if I want to learn an algorithm, I'll just get the book and do it when I need to. Um, and then, of course, you have calculus, right? And so uh, I was always good at math, but I never really took it seriously. And I remember the first test I got back, I think it was like a D or something like that. And <laughs> I, I walked in to talk with the professor to figure out like, Hey, like what happened? And he said, he said, no, it's okay. He says, some people just can't do math. You know, he says, that's just how it is. And so um, the next day I switched my major to math and uh, as a double major. So I was doing that computer course and then also math. And then um, I had the undergraduate uh, quantum mechanics course and I've always loved physics from a very young age. I was extremely excited by it, but I just felt that because of the time I'm born in, I should study computer science. But the moment I took that quantum mechanics course, I'm like, okay, this is it. This is what I love. And so I switched to physics and I decided to just kind of keep the math because you probably know this, but you know, when you do physics, math is like one of your best tools. And so I figured that it wouldn't hurt to, to work a bit harder on the math. It would definitely help the physics. So that, that's where those came from. Yeah. And then, then I saw that, I think, maybe directly after university, you went straight into um, a design studio, which aptly, I think you called Zero Entropy, which I really like the name. But what was... Yeah, it was actually during school. So oh, right. okay. um, I think I started um, my first company, I want to say 16, 17, something in that range. And mm -hmm. so that's the way I paid for school. Um, I was designing websites, designing and building websites. And then 
um, one of my clients um, was a shoe designer. Uh, they, they, they made men's shoes. And so I actually dabbled quite a bit in shoe design while I was going to school. And I had kind of this fork in the road. Well, I don't know, what do you call three-pronged, like a, like a, a spear, I guess, in the road, uh, where one prong was to continue with school. Um, I was really excited about physics, wanted to continue with graduate work there. Um, the other was to go do shoe design, men's shoe design. And then the third was to go into technology. Um, and that, that was kind of the life choices. Which one of those three do I make? And was that sort of when you decided that you kind of merge things together and go into industrial design and, and go into consumer tech and stuff like that? Well, what happened was I thought for a while about all of these and I felt that since I was young, I should take sort of the most, um, the most unpredictable road. And so of those, um, the one that I would have really no ability to say, hey, what am I going to be like five years from now was um, going to Asia to learn hardware and work on uh, what, what became mobile phones. And so, so that, that was like ultimately, like I picked kind of the most uncertain road and felt just had faith, I guess. I'm not really faith, but just felt that if I went in that direction, I would be able to explore something that I have not before. And so that's, that, that was when I moved from uh, the U.S. to Asia. So was it the mobile phones that, so you pick mobile phones and then move to Taiwan or was it the other way around? Did you go to Taiwan and then sort of figure things out? Well, so I, um, there was a startup, uh, my friend who I was in graduate school with, um, or actually yeah, my friend with my, um, was from undergrad. We um, visited uh, Taiwan, he was Taiwanese um, and we visited it. And uh, there was a startup that was gonna be started. Um, his aunt was gonna invest in it. And I met the CEO and the CEO said, um, that yeah, if you wanted to um, come here, I have a job for you. You can you can you can work. And what the company was going to do was to make a very low cost phone. So this was back two thousand, I guess three four. And um, back then, mobile phones were expensive. They, you know, they they were what they call feature phones. They didn't really do anything, but they were still quite expensive. And so he thought he knew how to manufacture a phone that would be sub twenty dollars U.S. and I was just really attracted to that. I always um, loved mobile phones. I thought they were, you know, any, any tool, any technology that um, empowers people, that gives us more freedom is uh, something that I'm naturally attracted to. And so I thought that it would be more interesting to uh, work on mobile phones than to design shoes. And so that, that was ultimately kind of the, the calculus is I could probably have a bigger impact making phones um, learning how to do hardware, like as a software guy, learning how to do hardware, I could probably have a better experience. Yeah, and this was the open Moco phone, right? No, this was actually before that. So um, what happened was we set out to make these um, feature phones, these really you know low cost phones. Mm -hmm. um, and long story short, it ended in a disaster. Um, we had all these phones, the protocol never worked, it never got stable. Um, we shipped about a million of them, they all came back to us which destroyed the company. Wow. And then I was, you know, kind of depressed after working hard, like so hard for so long. This was like um, uh, three years of work mm -hmm. that was completely destroyed. Um, I was ready to go back to the US. And then um, um, actually the older brother of the friend uh, of mine um, was talking to me and uh, I was just complaining. I was complaining about mobile phones and just how dumb they were. Like, why would the carrier be able to say what you can install on your phone? You know, why do they have any right of saying what can go on their network or not? Like, why isn't it like web? Why isn't it an open system? And he's like, well, why don't you just go make your own phone? And I'm like, huh, what do you mean? <laughs> he's like, uh, he's like, just get started. I'll teach you how to raise money. Um, I'll teach you how to start a company. Wow. Um, you know, if, if you think you can hire people, then go do it. And that's what became OpenMoco. Damn, so... Wow. Okay. So 16 years later, you're still in Taiwan, still building companies. And that's sort of how yeah. it all got started, right? Yeah. 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 You know, um, looking back on my life, there were um, specific individuals that were there for me at really critical times. I would like to say that I had the courage to listen and to accept their advice and to go for it. But, mm. you know, um, the saying ignorance is bliss is also 
uh, probably equally as true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can make a phone. Like, how hard can that be? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I think most people wouldn't have done that, but I'm glad that you you actually had the 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 gusto to go for it. That's amazing. Well, like, um, you know, studying physics. Um, one of the things you learned, um, I'm, I'm sure you learned this too, is that you have to derive things. So mm. you start off with an equation. And from that, you should be able to derive, you know, whatever, let's just say Kepler's motion, right? The, yeah. You know, the orbits of, of planets. Um, and so this ability to, from scratch, think about how to make something, um, that's a real double-edged sword because you understand how things work. You say something like, okay, I know what's involved with the phone. There's a collection of chips, there's power management, there's software that runs on it, there's a protocol that needs to you know, work across different base stations. Um, you can see in your head how those things fit together and how to make it in theory, right? And, you know, as they say, the, the, the gap between practice and theory is always greater in practice than in theory. So like the double-edged sword of learning physics is that um, you can be wildly off with your time estimates, with your difficulty estimates, how, how hard things are to do, how much pain you have to do to actually bring something real into the world. Um, but but um, I think the reason I was able to say, yeah, I can make a phone is because um, at least from a theory perspective, I understood what was in a phone, how did it work, um, and I thought that it would be possible to make one. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, you're right. Yeah. I never really thought about it, but most of what we do in physics is just derivations, one derivation. So yes. Yeah. Never, never thought yeah. about how that impacted my mental models and how I thought about things, but it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I think it does because you're able to distill something down. And, you know, most of the world, the way most of the world works is that people just follow what's been done before. And um, in that sort of mental model, you're emulating, you're, you know, you're copying, um, you're iterating. Um, but that doesn't work in physics. Like in physics, you have to understand, hey, what are the forces? What's going on here? Um, mm. How does it actually work? What is actually going on? And that that I think is a useful tool set when you're um, starting a business because like, you know how this works. Like if you're starting a startup and you're trying to do something that a big company is doing um, uh, in an incremental way, you're gonna die for sure. Like you have to have a radically new idea, a radically different approach, you know, otherwise like the one thing that the startup has that the big company can never have, like it just goes to waste. Yeah, so true. Yeah. And before I guess we get into a big physics rabbit hole, which I feel like might happen, <laughs> um, yeah. as as it tends to do, like when you when you talk to other physicists, I feel like you just end up going into that space. But just so we don't do that, um, I want to fast forward 16 years now and talk about uh -huh. what brought you into the blockchain and data privacy and digital property rights space. Like, what drew you to the area, and why did you create Bitmark? You know, why did you decide mm -hmm. that this is mm -hmm. what you want to do? So um, the, um, the other rabbit hole that I have to be careful we don't fall into is Bitcoin. And so, so yeah. Bitcoin got me in. Bitcoin is one of those things that I think once you understand what's going on, um, you can never go back. It's like, it's, uh, um, I'm trying to resist using any kind of physics language here, but you, know, you, you, you just cannot go back, right? Once you understand what's going on there. And, um, even though, like this was, I think, 2013, something like that, 12, 13, even though it sucked, um, the technology was really, really primitive, um, I was absolutely convinced that the future would be digital money. Like, it just, it just made all the sense in the world. And uh, th this is really because of my, my background. You know, I was born with the internet, grew up with the web, you know, making websites is how I paid for university. So, like, mm -hmm. I just know how kind of you can start with a technology that looks really primitive, but the idea is so powerful and um, over time it gets better and how fast it gets better can accelerate exponentially. And so I was like, this is it. This is definitely where I want to spend my time. And I was like, well, how can I contribute? Um, and what I felt was that in the digital environment, so, so the way that I looked at Bitcoin was really money for the internet and in that the internet, um, the web was not created with sort of an understanding of economics and understanding of the way that the business world works. It was very much created from kind of an academic perspective. And so um, 
just like there would be uh, digital money, I was convinced that there would be digital property, um, that the things that we hold on the internet, maybe like at the time I was thinking about honestly eBooks and music, and I was just like mad frustrated. Like, why is it that I buy an eBook and Amazon can say that I cannot read that eBook on this device or I could read it on that device, but I can't share it with my friend. Like, why is it that that works that way in the digital world, but in the physical world, they could never do that. And so I was kind of obsessed with that. And I was like, just like the banks are manipulating our money, we've got to build a new system that allows people to not manipulate our property. That's where it came from. That's where Bitmark came from. And so we tried to build um, a prototype, if you will, of that. And we built it first on Bitcoin, ran to a number of issues, um, and then realized we had to kind of use the algorithms that allowed for the consensus to happen on Bitcoin, um, use that same method to, um, to, you know, to record who owns what and what rights they have to that. And then that, that kind of became blockchain. Like in the original Satoshi paper, there was not blockchain. Those were two words in different paragraphs. It mm. became blockchain. Know, kind of through marketing um so we, we started before there was blockchain but um but quickly realized that yes like what we're actually doing is building a blockchain for digital property rights yeah fair enough and and seeing you've, you've kind of gone into it let's get into the meat of the issue which is um, okay. and you mentioned this term like a couple of times which is digital property mm -hmm. rights why is that important and why should people like first of all what is it and then yeah. why should people care about it yeah. So, um, so first like property rights, um, they came from land and then they were extended to knowledge like patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And so what a property right is, is an agreement of control, um, across, uh, different trust boundaries. So it's how you maintain, let me say it this way. It's how you maintain agreements of control across trust boundaries. So, um, land is simple. Um, you know, somebody registers a piece of land, um, there's a certain set of rights that they have. And when different parties um, use that, there are these um, rules as to what they can do with them. Now, typically um, a property right, like it's evolved uh, empirically really um, as a bundle. So the right to use the good or asset, um, the right to uh, earn income from it, the right to transfer it, um, and the right to defend your rights. And so like, if you think of, um, let's go back to the internet for a second, um, but if you think of servers or devices as having different kind of trust boundaries, you know, you have administrators, um, or if, if you wanna keep it more simple, you can think of like countries or homes or states, whatever. But when you have these different trust boundaries, you need to know, like you need to be able to have a framework for who gets to control what? Um, how are those resources going to be allocated? Um, and these are all issues of property rights. So domain names, IP addresses, it's actually really general. I don't think people understand how general this notion of a property right is. And um, what I realized was that uh, in the physical world, we have systems to record and to um, defend property rights, but in the digital world, there are none, um, or they've been really sort of perverted, like which is the case with media. But in the case of data, personal data, there's just none. It's like there's this resource that um, if you have more power, you just take as much of it as you want. Um, it's sort of like the world, you know, back before we had, um, you know, laws and principles and society. You know, might makes right. That's what it used to be. But now rights make might, right? And that's what society has decided that, look, no, we're not going to live in a world where the strongest, uh, most violent person gets all the rights and everybody else doesn't. But on the internet, we have. Like, we've sort of accepted the fact that, that the web works this way, the internet works this way, and I don't think we need to accept that. Yeah, and I, and I guess some, like, real-world applications of that would be, I mean, if you think about like property titles or bill of ladings and things like that. You have physical pieces of paper that people can use. And right now I don't think we have a digital equivalent for that. Right. And so by being able to, and correct me if I'm wrong, being able to mm -hmm. store the, the hash or the fingerprint of the document and being able mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. attest the authenticity of that document, 
-hmm. we can now transfer this stuff to digital uh, properties as well, right? Beyond just um, giving. Yes. Money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like from a from a first pass, um, you know, we started looking at things that that existed in the physical world. So you could say bill of ladings. You could say. Um, um, you know, supply chain type stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then we looked at things like digital music where you have a download. Um, and those all sort of looked like um, what I would call um, incremental improvements in that um, the way it worked now would be, you know, um, a bank wants to issue an LC. You have companies in different countries, shippers in different countries, and you need some sort of system to record all that trust to, mm -hmm. um, secure the provenance, right? Um, provenance is history and origin. So you need to secure that provenance. And so the way it worked before was you'd have central authorities that did this. And so just by being able to move from central authorities to a distributed system where there wasn't um, you know, necessary to have a trusted third party, like that's, that's a huge mm. um, efficiency gain. Now, what I realized and what I became the most passionate about working on were the assets, the resources that existed in the digital environment that nobody in the physical environment were recording, were trying to um, decide how these rights should be um, allocated, maintained, controlled. And that specifically is data. Um, and that's the one where it clearly breaks down. Like if you said, hey, could a bank record all of our data and track that as it moved around different countries, you'd be start laughing, right? Um, can a government do it? It would be even worse, right? And so, so that was the area that we kind of honed in on and we said, wow, there are amazing applications of this technology to be able to secure data provenance um, that could you know, begin to um, kind of fix and restore the trust in the internet. Um, and, and, and that's where, where Bitmark uh, as a company, um, as, as a team, that's where we've pointed most of our resources now. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess you mentioned a couple of different concepts. So one is, you know, the provenance of the data. The other one is the mm -hmm. the, the rights of the data. And then finally, like, you know, mm -hmm, we could probably mm -hmm. touch upon the privacy of the data. How do those sure. concepts sort of interweave and, in, you know, what, what's yeah, more important bet. for us? Yeah. So um, the physicist perspective would be if you have secure data provenance. Okay. So that's that's the core. From that, you can derive these other things that you want. So um, what are property rights? Property rights are, you know, these agreements of control. So what do you need in there? Well, you need to have an agreement of how it's going to be used, how you can make money from it, how you can transfer it. And so if you can secure those, um, those agreements, so like if you can secure the history and the origin, that's what's the provenance, then you can create a new system for recording rights. Um, if you want to deal with like the authentication of something, so this would be, uh, you know, letter of credit, you know, bill of lighting, these different things, what you need to be able to do there is to authenticate information. Now, information is just processed data. So again, if you could secure the provenance of data, you could secure the information such that it can be verified independently without a trusted third party. So what we realized was that this, this, the kernel, the you know the the absolute core of this is this idea of a secure data provenance that does not require a trusted third party, and so that's that's where we operate. And then we look for um, specifically what we're looking for is what are the things we can do that would generate the most leverage that would be able to um, uh, stop the abuses in the digital age, stop the abuses that we keep seeing again and again and again. Um, and some of those abuses, for example, are privacy violations. And privacy um, is something that I would argue at least is um, a property right in the sense of like if you have something, like if this is your property, um, if you have rights to this, you have rights to use. So if somebody else is using it without your permission, um, they are violating one of your rights. Um, you know, if, if, if you think about kind of uh, in most democracies, you do not have a right to privacy in a public park. Um, but you do have a right to privacy in your home. Um, and so so to first be able to be clear on the property rights, um, like that's that's really the first step. And then you can go into, well, okay, what are the privacy expectations? How do you actually technically secure privacy of digital things? 
Um, and there's there's a lot of kind of nuances, and I can talk a bit about some of the projects we've worked on there. But please, I mean, take it where you want to. Yeah, and I think what you said makes a lot of sense. So what I'm understanding is that um, it all starts with data provenance. Once you have the provenance and the status, you can then derive the rights. Then from the rights, you can actually start asking these questions about privacy and and where you want to take the technical implementation of that. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and you can do things like authenticating information in a really amazing way. Um, you can also, one of the things I'm most passionate about is you can unlock this new asset class. So personal data, I think, is going to be one of the most valuable resources in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you can unlock that and you can you can actually create markets for it because you know all markets depend on property rights. And so right now we have this weird situation where you know, companies like Facebook and Google um, just claim this asset as their own and um, run, um, you know, what are essentially like brokerage firms of uh, taking this, repackaging it, um, and selling it to the highest bidder in a perpetual auction. And so um, the moment you have this secure data provenance, you can, you can also begin to handle some of the really interesting like economic models that can come about. Yeah. So now that we're talking about the big bad wolf, let's, um, let's dive a little bit into that. And let me ask you this question. So why sure. should I, as a user of Facebook care if they use my data? Like why should data privacy be a concern of mine? I know there've been documentaries about it. You know, if you talk about the great hack uh, with Cambridge Analytica yeah. and weaponizing data and things like that. But I'm curious to see your thoughts on why we should care about that. Yeah. Since around 2015, I've been trying to convince people they should care, and nobody cared. Um, and something changed um, this past year, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe the past two years, I think, really. Um, but somehow I feel The Great Hack was, you know, that, that documentary film you mentioned, I think The Great Hack was able to articulate this such that um, everyone could understand. And... What was the most surprising to me, so first off, like I didn't even think about it as a hack, you know, originally. This was data that was used without permission, but it came out of Facebook's API. I mean, it wasn't like Facebook's servers were breached. There was no violation of 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 you know of of any kind of servers that I know of at least. And yet these documentarians said this is a hack. And what I realized was that no, my perspective was too small. What the hack was, was on democracy itself and society itself, and that our data is this weapon that allows people to um, manipulate, to exploit, um, uh, you know, and to ultimately change society, right? And um, when I finally saw the great hack, I was like, man, shame on me for not being able to tell this story in a way that that is easier to understand. And so I think people, they don't understand data privacy. They don't understand really even personal data for that matter. But in, in some ways it's like, it's this really abstract, intangible thing. So that should be, that, that probably should be, you know, the way it is. Um, but this idea that something is deeply wrong and that um, Facebook is behind it, um, or let's say companies like Facebook is behind it. Um, I think that's what changed. And I think that's the opportunity that we have is that, the general public uh, is open, like for the first time to this idea that, hey, there might be other ways of doing this to where our data can empower people. Like we can, we can empower humans um, as opposed to exploit them. How do you propose that we do that? So first, let me just dive a little bit deeper into what exactly is the problem. Mm -hmm. So what Facebook did, um, again, to, to kind of use like an engineering or, or like a physics perspective, what Facebook did was to create what's known as a man in the middle of attack. And so when you, uh, you know, when you share a photo, when you post an update, you think you're sharing that with your friends, your family, your loved ones. Um, but in actuality, uh, and this is not just Facebook, like facebook.com, this is Instagram, this is WhatsApp, this is all of Facebook's properties. Um, they are in the middle, intercepting all of that data and um, adding more information to that data 
you know, running it through machine learning algorithms, um, deep learning. They're doing all sorts of things to extract as much information as they can from that to sell to somebody that is then gonna turn around to use that information to manipulate you. And so what we realized was that, look, if you can secure the provenance of that data, so uh, if you can make sure that that data was not manipulated, that it was not in the hands of this party or that party without consent, then you have the ability to, you know, on, on like an internet, like an end-to-end -end protocol level, you have the ability to uh, rebuild that trust, rebuild that, that system. So what we want to do is um, to uh, give people, and this, this, is, this is actually a, a tool we're working on now, but we want to give people the ability to get their data, to, um, to register their own rights to that data, and then be able to start a new social movement where people would be in control. So um, you have your data, there's um, a simple API that people could use then to use your data in other systems, you know, in other apps, other third parties, but um, use it in a way where the rights and privileges were clearly defined. Um, that's what this secure data provenance protocol um, could do. Um, and so then your data could be used for good as opposed to harm. It could be used to generate wealth as opposed to manipulate you. And so this, this is something we've been working on for, you know, for a number of years, but then the specific uh, task of helping people to escape Facebook, this is something that it really was just watching the great hack. I was like, oh my God, like, okay, we've got to work on this problem and what can we do to help? Yeah. And maybe we can dive a little bit into spring as well. I, I think that's what you were yeah. mentioning. And yes. um, I'm also curious to see what the actual benefits are for users that would use spring and how it keeps them safe. Sure. So, um, to, um, so the benefits um, will happen gradually. Um, and then, like, then I think it will accelerate. Like, you know, like most of these things, um, um, when technology starts off, um, it's kind of clunky, not super, you know, not super um, uh, polished, but then it can be extremely exciting. And so um, uh, because of um, data regulation like uh, GDPR, GDPR is what Europe is using to like essentially take a buzzsaw to Silicon Valley um, to bust open, you know, the control of people's data. Um, because of this reg uh, regulation, Facebook uh, will give you your information if you ask them for it. Now, they made it difficult. They haven't put everything in there, um, but you can still get it. And you, you can get a lot of it. And so what we do is uh, to give people a way to get that information that's the most simple, the most secure, um, the easiest to use. So why you should get that? Um, right now, we don't have very good answers for that. Um, but if you want to get your information, uh, Spring, this app we make, is the best way of doing that. Now, um, what we're really trying to do is, so, it, you know, picture like in your head, there's this island um, and we're on some place and there's this other island and I'm saying, hey, this island is actually really great. There's a civilization over there that's really, um, you know, um, uh, good, we need to go over there. Um, I think if we, you know, grab some wood and uh, we can build a raft and we can get there, right? Who wants to go, right? And so that's kind of really where spring is right now. Um, what exactly we're going to do over there, um, I have some ideas and I'd love to share them with you, but we're very much like, okay, um, we believe it's worth exploring a new island because this current island sucks, right? And so, um, people that, that would like to do that, here's how you do it, and let's go do it. So spring, people that are interested in getting their Facebook data, um, understanding what's in there, um, that's the product we have right now. Um, uh, and, um, and then I think it's the best, the easiest way of doing that. Yep. And I was going to ask a couple of questions about how people could stay safe and protected and, you know, how we can leverage data properly, but maybe let's reframe yeah. the question since we're talking about islands, sure. but yeah. what yeah, does yeah, this yeah, yeah. data utopia look like? If you were to get to that island, what does it look like? How yes. are we using data? How are individuals responsible for their rights? 
How is privacy mm-hmm, preserved? Mm-hmm. What does this world look like? Awesome question. Awesome, awesome question. So um, the hint of this world um, came to me while we were working on a project with Pfizer. So um, in the healthcare system, there's this notion of informed consent. Before anybody can do anything to you as a person um, or anything that came from you, so your blood, your uh, specimens, you know, your, your poo, basically, uh, like before they can use anything from you, they need your consent. Um, mm-hmm. And this consent, this process of consent has to be informed, meaning you have to understand um, what's going on, what it's going to be used for. And um, I actually didn't understand how important this was and how deeply this is um, enforced across the entire system. There's, there, there's regulation um, that makes sure that this happens. And so the, the specific project we were working on with Pfizer was um, how do you um, match people that would like to participate in research with researchers that need people to participate. And so um, this, um, the vehicle for that is known as a clinical trial. And a clinical trial um, you know, has a group of people, usually you only get a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. Um, they are administering some kind of drug. It uses what looks like kind of a scientific method. So they have some ideas, this is gonna help people. And then they look at the data and they make sure the data supports that evidence. Um, if it doesn't, they go back and you know, rework on the drug. Um, you have regulators that are monitoring the entire process, um, very, very strict notions of consent, of privacy, of security. And I was like, oh my God, like the whole world should work that way. All data should work that way. If mm. you are contributing your data, you should have privacy rights. You should have security rights. You should be able to get the data back after it's being used. If there's significant advancements that are made, you should know about it. If the thing works, you should know about it. If it doesn't work, you should know about it. People that want to use the results of that clinical trial should be able to uh, use those in their work. There should be like, you know, public verification of that. I was like, damn, like that's actually the way that all personal data should be handled. Um, Back to GDPR for a second. So GDPR has this notion of a data controller um, somebody that handles data, and a data processor, somebody that processes data. Um, these are not always the same. You know, um, in the case of Facebook, Facebook is buying data from all kinds of data controllers and then processing it. Mm-hmm. And then Facebook is also selling your data to all kinds of data controllers that would then go process it. And so it's, it's a whole mess right, on, on the web and on the internet. Whereas in the healthcare system, um, they've come up with what I think is a very coherent, robust framework. Now, there's huge inefficiencies. It looks like money in the financial system. So there's huge inefficiencies. So a, 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 a new stack, if you will, to secure data provenance in health would be um, amazing. Uh, but the, the conceptual model of how an individual has rights to their records, has rights to their data, um, rights to making sure that the data is used in a way that doesn't harm them, um, that's the way that I felt social media should work. Um, all applications and services on the web, on the internet should work. And so that's, that's the vision, if you will. That's what that island looks like. So that island is um, people that um, interact with other people, um, with other corporations, with other institutions. And there is a protocol that secures the provenance of all of the data that's generated, that's exchanged, that's held, so that um, so that we don't lose control, so that you know we do have rights that were long established. You know, we do have those that are secure. Yeah, that <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, and I really like the the likening it to research and how you know they have to really explain how things are going to impact you before you go through it. I think that's exactly what we need for digital rights. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Let's let's stick with the boat and the island metaphor. Where are we? <laughs> yeah, where are we right. at in terms of this journey? Like, are we still building the boat? Are we? I know you guys are building part of the boat. Are we like halfway there? You know, where are we at on this journey? So we've got this boat. Um, it's built right now. 
and we kind of get about halfway across and then it breaks down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, what, what we have right now um, is an app that is in um, Google's app store, um, but it's not yet in Facebook's app store. Um, Facebook, uh, sorry, in um, <laughs> not Facebook's app store. Um, it'll probably never be in Facebook's app store. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's not yet in the Apple app store. Um, and so what, so what this app does is it automates the process of getting your data back from Facebook. Um, and then it gets it to you and puts it in your control. And then um, we are um, in the process of um, working on kind of the first things that you would do on that island, um, partnering with some other people that you know, also want to be on that island and um, give you apps and services um, that would you know, bring value to your data, um, you know, do it in a way you know, that protects those rights and privileges. And so we're, we're really kind of like um, in that transport, in that early stage, hey, we're still building this, this boat. Um, how do we make the boat better? So we really want feedback on that. Um, where is it breaking down? How do we make it faster? How do we make it easier to use? Um, and then we also want to know like, hey, what are some of the things that we need to build you know, to make that island? Um, um, you know, uh, who wants to join us on that? So we're, 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 we're in this kind of early transport stage um, where we're uh, exploring with how to build the boat and then uh, you know, simultaneously, really, um, how to build the boat and then what are some things on that island we need to do first. But really, like, our hope, so our, our as in Bitmark, the company, our hope is that um, what we do is we build the boat um, and then we make this data protocol. So once people are on that island, um, you know, a lot of startups, a lot of institutions um, would go do what they do well which is to, um, you know, use this data to improve people's lives. I mean, that, I think I, the biggest disappointment of Facebook to me is not really that we're being manipulated. Um, I, I guess that's kind of, you know, that's what happens when you have a man in the middle attack. But the biggest disappointment to me is that the best thing these guys can come up with, like the best use they have of this valuable resource, like this personal data, the best use they have is to sell it for advertisement. I mean, like, that is just so unimaginative to me. It's like, why isn't that data improving your life? Why isn't that data empowering you to do new things you didn't think you could do before? So, so, so like, that's really what I hope we can inspire people to do, is to think about how can we use personal data to improve your life, to empower humans. Like, advertising, I mean, come on. Like, that's, so, that's just so, it's, it's such an such a obvious, um, simple, like, uninventive thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, in that case, what would you, what are some real world examples of things that we can do with data that are more inspired than just selling people things? Um, I, um, I'm very inspired by um, a lot of this kind of biohacking, life hacking, um, uh, quantitative self. Um, I've been very inspired by some of these um, products. Um, Right now, uh, I use a product called Whoop, um, mm-hmm. which is a band that goes on your wrist, and it um, helps you to understand like how you're sleeping, um, how you're exercising, where are you in your recovery, um, how much strain your body can take on, and um, these sorts of things. Um, I, I feel that over the past you know, one to two years, we're kind of at an inflection point with some of these um, deep learning algorithms with some of the kind of the basic, um, not like general AI, but like um, um, uh, like specific AI, like domain specific AI, um, where, where these really can improve things. Um, mm. in, in, in manufacturing, um, uh, I think this is becoming quite evident um, in hospitals, you know, when it comes to um, cancer, uh, surgery, um, we're seeing how uh, computer vision algorithms are beginning to have just an incredible impact. And so what I believe is it's time to bring this to personal data. It's time to um, help people to improve, you know, not just in sports or in, 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 in health, but in everything they do and everything they love. Amazing. That sounds cool. So I have one last question before we, I want sure. to talk a little bit about Bitmark um, at the end, but 
my last question sure. to you on this whole data privacy aspect is um, what is everyone else doing? Like what are some of the stuff that's happening out in the world, like GDPR and, and some of the other stuff that's happening to get to this, this new place? And um, do you think it's enough? Uh, what do you think needs to happen just on a broader perspective? Absolutely. So, um, so first off, the biggest problem right now um, on the, let's just call it a policy level, um, is that um, the understanding of code and law. So law really is code. Um, you know, uh, the only people that think in terms of like if then statements are lawyers and engineers, right? And so there's very, very similar. Like these are two different ways of solving the same problem. But I mean, like, like law is code, just been debugged for 5,000 years. And so the problem right now is that at a policy level, um, governments um, and people for that matter, we're not connecting these. We're not realizing that, that these have to be connected um, before things like GDPR can actually work. And so, um, for example, Facebook can give you your information, but it's in a format you can't use, or it's in a format that, that changes over time such that companies, even that they can parse it, can't really, or really, really struggle with it. Mm. So, so um, there's a whole bunch of work that needs to be done to connect code and law together such that policy can get a lot smarter. Um, I'm optimistic in that there's people for the first time that are listening, that are working together. You have engineers, you have Congress people, um, parliament people that are beginning to work together. Um, you know, lawyers and engineers beginning to work together. That, that's a key. Um, and once that happens, uh, we'll be able to see like the portability of data, the portability of this resource. Um, and then what I think will happen would be people will begin to experiment with what rights do we want to have? So, you know, rights are always a question that society um, has to confront. So do you have a right to own people? Do you have a right to kill people? You know, do you have a right to use people, right? Do you have a right to this resource, to that resource? Um, these are things that change over time. Um, but what I believe is if we can get the code and we can get the law to actually connect, um, to uh, be tightly coupled, right? <laughs> Um, like these physics particles, right? You need, you need mm. tight coupling. Um, that if we can get that, then we have a chance of coming up with a model that can work in practice. But we don't have it yet. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how but I like I being path. likened to a lawyer, like being an engineer, but I do understand the point that the code and the law kind of need to, you know, come together. They are the same thing, as you said. Um, yeah, they really are. Yeah. I mean, like... I'm the son of a lawyer and you know, my, 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 my training is in um, uh, physics and engineering. And so yeah. like, I, I always felt you don't need lawyers. Like <laughs> I used to joke with my dad that, you know, like, like the software engineers are going to put you lawyers out of business, right? Like yeah, I was yeah. totally convinced that would happen <laughs> in my twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And then in my forties, I was like, Oh shit. Like <laughs> we're the same. Oh my God. <laughs> we're the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing about uh, data and privacy and digital property and, and all of that. I think that was super fascinating. Um, I do want to touch upon Bitmark and give you a bit more time to explain, uh, I guess, the Bitmark protocol and, and what you guys are working on at the moment to really pop, like, you know, create that, I guess, that ocean channel from one island to another. What does that look Great. like? Great. Um, so the Bitmark protocol. Um, secures the provenance of data. And the way we do that is by recording um, um, the origin and all of the histories on a blockchain. And so that allows um, anyone anywhere to authenticate that information as it moves between people, as it propagates between systems, as it goes across um, you know, different, you know, different, different algorithms. Um, now, the blockchain that we record on is um, our own blockchain. It's a public blockchain, but it's, it's built specifically for um, recording the programs of data. So it does not have smart contracts. It does not have 
um, you know, UTXOs the way Bitcoin does. It's really, really specific, really highly optimized for just data provenance. Um, that's an engineering kind of discussion that will bring us down another rabbit hole. But that's that's what it is, um, how it works. Um, and uh, it's a public blockchain. So that means you need some kind of token that'll, that provides an incentive for people to protect it. And so um, instead of doing an ICO, instead of doing an issuance of our own token, we just use Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. I felt that Bitcoin was a great uh, money. So we came up with a method um, that in, in some ways looks similar to kind of like the early days back when there was merge mining um, that allows uh, people to, to pay to secure a provenance of data, um, but to pay in Bitcoin and to the people that record that provenance, you know, what other blockchains call mining. Um, the people that record that provenance and protect it, um, they can earn small Bitcoin fees for doing that work. Yeah, makes sense. And then um, cool. do you want to touch a little bit upon the storing of documents? I guess like you, you store the hash of the documents to to ensure the yeah, provenance sure, and sure. then also the whole Bitmark shares uh, to share the you rights. You got it, you got it. You got it, you got it. So, um, so the data... And this is always worth making clear because I think there's there's this kind of um, there's this um, confusion that people put like if you have a document that people put the document on the blockchain, but actually what you put is a hash. Mm -hmm. It's like like a it's like a fingerprint that can identify that document at a later time. But the document might be huge. I mean, it could be you know a four gigabyte uh, movie, right? And so um, you put that anywhere. Um, and our architecture, you put it really literally anywhere. It could be on your phone, um, in the hospital server, um, in Google's cloud. And then you reference it with the fingerprint. Um, and you include some other metadata. You might want some publicly accessible data to explain, hey, what is this data? Um, in the case of health, for example, oftentimes we will say that this is um, um, uh, where did the biospecimen um, uh, come from? Um, what type of data is this? Is it like um, uh, sensor data? Is it uh, um, you know data from humans? Um, so we put some metadata that that makes that particular um, uh, asset um, easier to index, easier to understood, um, easier to match, um, and that information is what gets written into um, what we call the Bitmark certificate. And then when you have that, um, what we wanted to be able to do would be to have um, more nuanced control over that. So, you know, typically you would say, um, this is my data, I own it. Um, but then if you actually think about how that works in practice, um, in reality, um, the control of something can be more nuanced. Um, you might have um, a device that you own that generates data, and that data is then, um, you know, processed by another program. And you might want to say, look, um, when this data is used, I would like the control. Um, so the right to use it, the right to earn income from it, um, to be fractionalized across a number of different parties such that the revenues could be distributed across those parties. And so we, we architected into our um, secure data provenance protocol, we architected in this ability to share in the control of an asset, um, to share in the rights, if you will, of that asset and to express that control as, as um, uh, small fractions, you know, um, you, if, if you're an entrepreneur, you could think about this as um, selling ownership in your company. You know, you, you issue shares and transfer those shares to uh, investors, you know, to employees. Um, and so we wanted the digital world to reflect that to where the ownership is not this binary thing. It's mine. It's not yours. Um, it's this more nuanced uh, um, uh, thing that can capture what's really going on. What would be a real world example of, um, you know, let's say you split your Bitmark shares and someone owns one mm -hmm. third, someone owns another third and another person owns a third. What does that actually mean, I guess, from a, a real world example? Um, um, in health, um, when, when you, let's say you go get um, uh, an MRI um, at a hospital, um, there's data that comes off of the machine um, the way it works now is um, the device manufacturer um, gets a copy. The hospital actually 
claims that they de-identify that data and then they sell it. Um, and then the patient, um, if they want, they can request um, the process data, um, right. the images. And um, so, th so, so in some countries, um, that data, it belongs to the individual. In some countries, it belongs to the state. In some countries, it belongs to the hospital. It's never, it's never this clear thing. Um, in the U.S., you have like 38 states that have some notion of um, individual rights to medical data, but they're conflicting. And so what you actually really want to do is to be able to capture those rights such that at a later time, sorry, not capture the rights. You want to capture the provenance such that at a later time, you can have discussions of those rights. Mm. Um, who actually receives the income when the hospital sells that data? Who actually has to give permission for the hospital to sell that data, right? Um, or in the case of this new island we're trying to make, um, if I have an algorithm and that algorithm creates a lot of value, who gets to participate in the, you know, the benefits of that algorithm? And these are questions that I feel um, are not binary answers. It's not like, well, the person that made the algorithm gets all the wealth, right? Um, that's not the way it works uh, in the real world. And so, like, I believe that, like, you know, these, you know, these systems, you know, the economic systems, the social systems that we've created, we've built these things up over, you know, thousands of years. We've built these up uh, empirically based on how to organize people, how to, how to maximize, you know, the happiness of society. And um, we're just not thinking about what are the economic systems, what are the recording systems that would allow um, us to, to kind of run these experiments where we actually learn how to maximize the happiness of people in the digital world. Right now, we know how to exploit them. I mean, the tech companies are doing a damn good job at that. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't know how to actually maximize happiness. I mean, social media is creating like a wave of depression across all kinds of people. It's, it's a huge issue, right? We do not know how to use technology to maximize happiness, but that's what we should be doing. Yeah, that would be a hell of an algorithm uh, maximization right? problem on happiness. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I mean, I, I, I think, like, I, I think that's the point of all this stuff, right? Is like, like how do we get better? How do we improve? Mm. You know, how, do, how do we, you know, how do we make society more just? Right? How do we make that, you know, like, how do we make these tools of economics, like, actually lead to a more just, fair market that people can participate in? How do we strengthen um, the democratic system as opposed to exploit it, right? These are all questions that I believe you just can't answer without um, a secure data provenance that is not under the control of a trusted third party. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You need to yeah. build that base yeah. before we can even ask yeah, yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one of the actual edge cases that I thought was really interesting that you guys dive into is um, the whole fact where, you know, there are secure data sets where, you know, different companies may own their own data and they may want to pull those siloed data sets to get some sort of meaningful insights from, for example, fraud in hospitals and you want to get different data sets from different hospitals. Um, how are you guys looking into that issue and, and why is that important? That's a great question. So, um, I mean, you know, if you step back and you think about like your data as an individual, um, um, economically speaking, has no value. Um, as big data, again, economically speaking, it's exceptionally valuable. Like mm -hmm. all of Facebook's value is the big data of their users. Now, just put aside for a second, like the economic problem with that argument. Um, the, um, the obvious conclusion is that big data is valuable. So how do you have big data without stripping people of their privacy and their security and their rights? Um, and so what we've been working on, and this is not just us, I, I think there's like a flurry of activity going on now where um, how do you uh, enable groups of people to be able to um, uh, do computations on data 
um, in a way that preserves privacy. So there's a number of technologies. Um, there's multi-party computing, uh, known as MPC, um, secure MPC, homomorphic encryption. Um, there's all sorts of things that are going on now where the cryptographic tools are just beginning to work. Um, and, uh, and it's very exciting. And, um, and that's what I'm sort of uh, looking at thinking that, okay, when we get this transport um, protocol to get the data provenance secure, that when we do pool it, um, the technologies um, will be ready to allow us as groups to enforce the rights and privileges across pools of data. Um, what we did previously, so last year we ran some of these um, uh, pools of data. So we did one for diabetes data and the way we did that was really just to trust people. We said, look, we're going to have a pool of data that is um, run by um, um, people from a company, people from an institution, people from, um, uh, from academia, and they're going to decide which algorithms get to run on this. And they're going to decide based on the interests of trying to uh, advance diabetes research. And so we use people to do that. Um, and the people themselves were accountable. They were publicly identified. Um, their profiles, their backgrounds. Um, but what I believe is you want a combination of people that you can trust with um, code you can verify. And so, so what we're moving towards is how do you connect this idea of sort of um, what some might call um, uh, fiduciaries, people that have um, a legal, ethical, moral responsibility of looking after people's assets. Um, how do you connect the fiduciaries with an accounting system um, with the data provenance, um, you know, with this sort of technology that would allow the groups to define what those rights are and to enforce them with strong cryptography. So that's 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 how these pieces fit together. Um, you could say the code and the law, or you can say the you know the humans and the technology, but those have to be tightly coupled, um, and then people will be able to trust it. Amazing. It seems like the other side of the coin to your. The provenance point right so you have provenance and then the other side of the coin is privacy cryptography and how you actually maybe and get to a future where no one actually shares their data at all right and it's just sort of this pooled mess of things that people get insights from um yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely i mean um the the problem with sharing data um is um the moment you make a copy of that data and you give it to someone, even if you say, hey, I have legal rights to that, um, like even if there was a very robust framework for data rights, which there's not, but let's just mm. say for a moment there was, um, there's the physics of something that like, okay, you've made a copy of that and, um, and you, can't, you can't take that back, right? Like mm -hmm. that's just how the internet works. You can't take back packets of data once they've propagated. Um, so, so some data will be so sensitive that you know you might never actually make a copy ever. Mm. Um, you know, in 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 my mind, this might be like your genome, right? Like you might want to sequence your whole genome, but you might never want to allow that to leave your custody. Um, but what you would want is somebody to bring their algorithm to your genome and run something such that you knew the results of that algorithm would still be, you know, cryptographically safe, cryptographically provably private. Um, and so, so, so like, you know, even, even in a world where you have very strong data rights, um, you would still want to make sure that you had a system engineered such that, um, that you could protect the data itself as an asset. Yeah, so true. So if someone wanted to start using Bitmark or get more involved, how, yeah. could, they, how could they do that? We have two products. Um, if you're a developer and you would like to um, learn more about secure data provenance. I think our protocol is fantastic for that. Um, if you have an app that you need this kind of thing, please, please use it. Give us feedback. We desperately need feedback on this thing. Um, if you're an individual that is interested in um, getting your Facebook data, uh, would like to see what's in there, would like to have a backup of it, um, we have an app called Spring. Um, uh, we would love for you to try it. Give us feedback on that. We want to make it a lot better. Um, and then, you know, just uh, like in general, you know, let me know what you think on this. I, I always love um, feedback, especially corrective feedback. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm like a lot of people um, in, in that I suffer from wishful thinking. And so 
um, anything that helps me to get kind of kind of smarter, faster, less wrong, faster is something I would love to know. Awesome. And seeing as this is a personal growth podcast, could you recommend one resource that you think everyone listening should read, maybe about data, maybe about personal growth? And then also, um, if people wanted to connect with you personally, where could they find more about you? So people should read Wikipedia. Um, you know, there's this um, coronavirus going around. And mm-hmm. um, if you read the news, uh, it's so hard to process anything. Um, you know, the, the news cycle is too fast. Um, the information is too scarce. The data is too spread thin. Um, and if you read the Wikipedia article on this, um, it's just such an interesting experience. Um, I find myself like again and again and again, going back to Wikipedia um, and like take, for example, property rights, like what is a property right? And if you look at the article on Wikipedia for this, it's just fascinating. It will lead you down all kinds of rabbit holes and get you so smart so fast. And so I think like in this world of news that moves, you know, a million miles an hour um, of data without provenance, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like go to Wikipedia because there's provenance there and they're really, really, really trying hard to slow everything down to give you something that you can trust. And I think like Wikipedia is um, like a glimpse of the future. That I think is just so critical. So critical. Um, to find me, uh, um, email is always good. So I have my personal website. Um, my email is just sean at mosspulse.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. Twitter is my favorite of the social networks. Um, but I'm sometimes slow to reply. Like I kind of go um, not really offline, but I try to disconnect quite often just, just to focus. But um, I love uh, talking on Twitter. Um, you know, email's good. That was my email. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Sean. AJ, I really appreciate the opportunity and I, uh, I'm really admiring what you're doing. Um, we need more conversations to help people to, you know, to take the, um, the road that leads to a better future. So thank you so much for your work. Thanks for listening, Startup House. Remember, keep exploring, connecting, and inspiring. If you want to get more involved with us, follow us at draperstartuphouse.com. That is draperstartuphouse.com. Or follow me at ajprakash.net. A-J-A-Y prakash.net. See you next time.